Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Somerset Stories, the podcast which explores the lives of the people who live, work and create in Somerset. My name's Lewis Webb and each week I get to share the stories of some of the inspiring, creative and successful individuals and families that make this beautiful county their home. My guest this week is most recognisable when walking through the skies high above crowds of people. Our county's very own rope walker, Chris Bolzini. Chris has performed for audiences from all walks of life in many different countries around the world, but he's happy to call Somerset his home. This year, he has entertained visitors at Borough Hill Farm, created a socially distant circus, and streamed wonderful acrobatic and pyrotechnic performances over the web during lockdown. Chris, welcome to Somerset Stories. Thanks for having me, Lewis. Yeah, it's good to be here. First things first, Bolzini. Yes. Not your typical Somerset name. Uh, no, no. It's um, in fact, I think I'm, I'm not quite the last of the Bolzinis. Luckily, I have a daughter who's uh, carrying on the bloodline, as it were. <laughs> she she carries my my name. Um, but yeah, it it is my real name now. Um, but it's not the name I was born with. Um, but traditionally, in the 1800s, um, the golden age of circus, the 19th century, uh, it was not uncommon for a British circus performer to, to make themselves sound more exotic, they would um, change their surname to sound uh, either French or Italian or usually from somewhere in Europe because that was a long way away then and, and that was really exotic. So yeah, it, was, it, was, it started as a joke. <laughs> and then it, finally, yes, I've changed it by deed poll. So that is my name. I am Mr. Balzini. <laughs> Have you been in this part of the world your whole life? Not at all, no. In fact, I haven't even been in this country for, for a large part of my life. Um, I was born and raised in, on the east side of the country in a small village called Great Gidding. Um, yeah, lovely little village. Not much happens there. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful part of England. Uh, and then when I was a teenager, I left when I was about 19. I left England and I stayed away for about 12 years travelling the world. Uh, before coming back about another 12 years ago. Were your, were your parents performers? Was performance kind of in the family? Um, my, my parents were both, well, they were both straights, <laughs> I can say. Uh, my father was a scientist and my mother was uh, an English teacher, a, a teacher in school. But my mother also taught drama and my introduction to the stage was very much connected to my relationship with my mother uh, the first thing that I did when I was, gosh, I must have been 10 or 11, I suppose, um, and I was in the village pantomime. Um, yeah, it makes me smile looking back at the character and uh, how embarrassed I was being on stage. Um, but something about it I did really love. I loved that performance. I loved to perform, yeah. Growing up as a young child, what kind of entertainment were you, were you, taken, were you taken to shows as well? Did you get to experience? I don't remember a lot of shows as a kid, certainly not circus. I remember going to Shakespeare with my mum, and I still like Shakespeare. Um, yeah, I don't, know, I don't know how... I think I got into circus more by doing it than watching it. So it wasn't that I was inspired by seeing other people doing circus and then I wanted to, to, to emulate that. It was that I, I learned to juggle, um, I learned to you know, ride a unicycle um, and do some crazy tricks, you know, acrobatics, forwards, rolls and stuff. 
um, and, um, and I really enjoyed the feeling of doing it. But I, I didn't even cross my mind what it looked like or that it was even a job. I mean, it was a possible thing to, to do for money. You mentioned you went travelling at 19. That was partially spurred um, by quite a significant loss in your family. That's right, yeah. My, well, several things happened in a month, but the most dramatic of all, the most, um, you know, the, the largest event of my life probably, to a large extent, was um, my mum died when I was 19. Um, it was around the time of my A-level exams. I was doing retakes of A-level exams. It was actually three days before. So there were other things that happened. Yeah, the, the, my exams, um, I failed my exams, so I didn't think I'd get into university. Um, the girl that I was in love with got together with my best friend. Um, yeah, the, there were a lot of uh, challenges with, with my family. My, my father and my mother were already separated. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I felt like I didn't really have anything for me in England. So I set out to seek my fortune, I suppose. It was a bit, I always see it a bit like, you know, looking back, a bit like um, sort of Tom Sawyer, like, you know, little handkerchief with a sandwich in it over my shoulder and off into the world. Except instead of having a sandwich, I took four juggling balls. <laughs> <laughs> Did you acclimatise well to, to life on the road? I, I loved it. It took me a while. Um, the, my first shock was that everybody didn't speak English. Um, you know, I'd learnt some French, not very much, but some French, some German in school. Um, but I, it hadn't really crossed my mind that um, people in France really do speak French. Um, and, you know, similarly around the rest of the world. So that, that was the challenge, was um, learning the languages. But, yeah, before too long, not only did I learn to speak the languages of the countries that I was in, but I learned to communicate through performance. So I would do shows on the street and I would be a silent clown. And I realized that the language of comedy is something that sort of transcends um, oral language. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it was such a gift in a way. To, the same thing that was isolating, that thing of the lack of communication, you know, not having a mastery of Greek or Spanish or Italian or whatever, um, but being able to communicate with people with this universal you know, laughter was, was really special. Yeah. Did you have any um, particular venues or locations which were like a highlight to perform in? Gosh, yeah, there's so many. I mean, I could talk about it all day long. I mean, there's so many places I've been and seen and performed at. And, you know, I often say that I've performed in probably over 30 countries and, you know, so many different places in each. Uh, I remember beautiful shows in in India, in the slums, for example, and in Brazil, in the, in the ghettos and slums and favela uh, for really poor kids. Um, and that, that touched my heart so much. Like, it's so lovely. It's like a passport that you can go anywhere that, yeah, on the one hand, one week I'd be in a, in a really impoverished um, slum performing for street children or, you know, really, really, you know, poor people. Um, and then another week, you know, a week later, I'd be performing for like the Maharaja. Um, and, you know, in this fine palace and doing the same show. And, and again, you know, that's where the art transfer, it transcends the um, cultural differences. Uh, you know, circus has always been a very everyman's art form. Um, and so it's loved by people of all classes. Uh, you know, famously in Victorian England, 
Um, Crystal Palace was a circus venue and, and the, the Toffs used to come along in their finery and enjoy a lovely trapeze show. Um, and equally, you know, then and now, uh, people from the sort of roughest housing estates or, um, you know, any different background love to come and watch the circus. Like, it's, you know, it's really accessible to everyone. It was during your travelling time that you got hooked on rope walking as well. How did that start? Absolutely. Well, the rope walking didn't begin, you know, I hadn't always been a rope walker. Um, as I say, I did clowning and juggling and a bit of fakirism, eating fire and laying on beds of nails and all those kind of things. Um, and then I was in Greece. I've been staying in Greece on and off. I've been staying in Greece for quite some time. And I went to a festival. It was a circus festival. And I did something. I can't remember what. Um, and I remember seeing this girl on a slack rope, on a, on a sort of low slack rope, about a metre off the ground. And I was absolutely stunned. I was hypnotised by how it looked like she was floating. Seeing the space under her feet somehow just gave, you know, it looked like it was impossible what she was doing. And I was really drawn to the energy and the focus that was in her presence. Um, and it turned out, I ended up meeting that girl. We became good friends. Uh, and I said to her, you know, I'd love to learn that. I'd love to learn. So she, she agreed to teach me the basics uh, on one condition. She set a condition. She said, if you promise not to fall in love with me. Um, so I did my best. Um, I think I managed not to fall in love with her. But I absolutely did fall in love with the rope. And that feeling of, you know, it's like a forced meditation. To train on the rope, you need to be so present and so focused that it forces you to focus the mind on one object and therefore not get distracted with one's thoughts or um, other things. So, funambulism. Yes. Great word. Oh, I'm glad you know the real word first. That's, uh, <laughs> that's rare and beautiful to hear it from somebody else. <laughs> uh, so what, what do you know about the history of rope walking as an art? Wow. Well, you can probably see um, these row of books. I've got um, countless books on, um, on the art form and um, some of the people that have uh, done, you know, my predecessors, the, my lineage, as it were. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's very old. For one, it's probably as old as ropes are. There are references to funambulists performing in Roman times. Um, so, you know, you're looking at around, the, you know, maybe 2000 years ago. Um, and certainly we have like images of people in medieval times in this country um, performing at fairs and so forth. Uh, incredible, bizarre tricks. Some of the tricks we still use today, they stand on chairs that are balanced on ropes. Uh, some of them we probably wouldn't see in this day and age. There's a lovely woodcut of a gentleman um, up on a rope balancing um, a pipe and several other objects, like the pipes in his mouth and then balancing several objects on the pipe whilst he's standing on the rope. And then all the way through, you know, that's sort of 1600s, 1500s, 1600s, um, and then all the way through particularly the golden age of circus. And this for me is like the real heartbeat of where circus as we know it was born and circus was massive like the circus performers were more interesting and important and more well paid than anybody else relatively speaking they were like the pop stars of their day um, so sadly now we don't get quite the same wages or attention 
Um, but um, it's really exciting to, to check in with, and, and particularly, I suppose, a great hero of mine was um, uh, Blondin, was Charles Blondin, um, who was a French gentleman who crossed Niagara Falls in 1859. Uh, and when he crossed Niagara Falls, he changed the world. He did something that people didn't believe is possible. And when they saw it or they heard about it, they opened their minds to believe in something that seems impossible. Um, yeah, and then he lived out his life in the UK. He chose to live out his life in England, uh, was a performer at Crystal Palace and all around the UK. Um, and I think he was a, he really paved the way for funambulism um, f as we know it and doing these sort of long high crossings. You talked a little bit about learning and kind of the first, first few times. Um, what goes through your head when you're, you know, just taking those first few steps? I imagine you're quite close to the ground, but you're still getting that feeling of, uh, of, of height and floating that you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, like in the very beginning, it's all quite confusing because you don't understand why the person who's teaching you can do it and you can't because it looks like it's really easy for them and it is, but it's not easy for you. So it's really hard to figure out why that is. And it's basically, it's like anything that we learn to do with our body. Um, we use one part of the brain to learn and another part of the brain to do when we can do it. Um, and to learn it, the brain needs to guide the body to learn a certain technique to do it well and efficiently and effectively and with as little energy expenditure as possible. Um, and then another part of the brain to, to do it once it's in our muscles, once it's in our bones, in our, in our, in our blood, in our soul, you know, if you like the poetic sort of description of it. Um, and, and then, yeah, and so every trick that I learned, so that's the, that's the beginning, the foundation, just being able to walk on a rope. And then every trick I learn, whether that's standing on my head or hanging on by my toes or doing a forward roll on the wire, riding a bike, standing on a chair, you know, all the things, uh, it's the same process. So it's like back to the drawing board, I can't do it, I don't know how to do it. I'll try, oh, I can nearly do it. And then constantly, we, by repetition and almost process of elimination uh, and training and refining those muscles um, and the way that the, the body holds on and lets go with the right balance, um, then it becomes not only possible, but it becomes so certain that one can achieve that trick, that one can do it at height and without a safety harness. How do you... How do you know your, your limits in terms of going higher and further? That is a real process. And obviously it's, um, when I used to perform low down, sort of a metre, metre and a half off the ground, maybe two metres, then I was a lot more flexible with what I thought my limits were. And normally I wouldn't fall off and sometimes I would fall off. And obviously if I did fall off, I would, um, I'd be all right. Might have sprained an ankle or, you know, had a bump on the head or whatever. Now I do pretty high, pretty long um, crossings, you know, potentially over <laughs> the concrete or something. Um, it's a very different process. So there cannot be any doubt in one's mind that one can safely return to the ground after, after executing that, that walk. Um, and that does mean that the training is a lot more rigorous. Uh, for one thing, it means that um, you know, where I, I might have used to train things 10 times, now I might train them 100 times. Um, yeah, it's about knowing your personal limits and having guidance from a teacher really helps, it's crucial. 
Um, and at the same time, sometimes I, I like to say that I do everything that I train low, I do high, but that's not the case for me. There's, there's actually stuff that I'll do low down, but when I get to a certain height, I wouldn't take that risk. And I guess that's why I'm here today, being able to talk to you about it. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned, obviously, the difference between those, the sort of trick stuff and maybe the higher, longer, kind of in more endurance style Absolutely, uh, yeah. walks. Is there a difference in preparing for, for those, those two things? Yeah, very much so. And it is, it's kind of like, um, I often use the analogy of, of bicycles because I think people can understand that really well. So looking at um, bicycle riding, as a genre and then take for example two examples one of like the tour de france or you know long distance um road uh, cycling uh, and um bmx trick riding um and obviously with um with long distance crossings it's more similar to tour de france like yeah you've got to pace yourself um you don't want to burn out um early on because towards the end when your muscles are burning and fatigued um, and you're still there and it's still high and maybe a gust of wind comes or whatever, you want to have enough energy to be able to complete the walk, of course, um, and you won't be focusing on doing lots of different tricks and, um, you know, adhering to a choreography really tightly and neatly. Uh, where, and that's more similar to Tour de France, I suppose. It's, it's about endurance and so the training is about staying on the wire for a long period of time, uh, training at being at height, um, and, and assimilating, you know, some of the conditions. I, I actually train in pretty bad weather, <laughs> which is lucky in England because there's loads of it. So yeah, I train in the wind and the rain and uh, everything but an electrical storm <laughs> for obvious reasons. <laughs> and then the trick stuff, so shorter wires um, and um, possibly it's even over a net or it's a bit, a bit lower. Um, and so it's easier for one to take more risk, different risk. Um, and the way of training that, I might not even be on the wire as much. I spend a lot more time in the gym, for example. Um, but yes, also drilling out the tricks and also training to music. So something that I really love doing, and I think, I think most of us as circus performers love doing, is listening to music that really inspires us. And I mean, this is where the dance comes in. So by hearing the music, it inspires one to move in a certain way and new, new tricks, new moves, new styles are born from that. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, listening to the music and rehearsing and f refining those moves so that one gets a kind of flowing journey from one move to the next to the next, which, yeah, might fit more tightly to a choreography with, with music. When you're doing one of those sort of longer crossings, are you 100% focused 100% of the time or do you have moments where you can sort of take a, a mental step back, I suppose? Gosh, well, I mean, yeah, there's two things that spring to mind. Like one is the intention is always to be focused 100% of the time, you know, 200%, 1000%. Well, you know, obviously 100% is maximum, but yeah, all of the time. Um, because the danger of losing focus is, is um, well, it's obvious. It's, um, you know, one can make a mistake. Um, having said that, we're human beings. Um, so like with any meditation, uh, I don't know if anybody, you know, if you've tried meditation, but uh, the mind does wonder. So one thing is it's a reality that I might be 20 meters up in the air, 
walking my wire with the spotlights on and 15,000 people in the audience and you know all, all that scenario and my mind might wander to a thought related to the wire like oh I hope the rigging's okay and it's not going to lose tension or you know those concerns or a bird's not going to fly in front of my vision uh, or, it, or it might even be a completely distracted thought like oh I wonder what I'll have for supper um, and literally those thoughts, you know, you don't choose them. Those thoughts just sort of arise in the mind. It's fascinating. As a meditator, it's fascinating to observe the mind and see just what a, a, a tricky monkey mind we carry. It's, it's incredible. Um, the problem is not that those thoughts arise. The, the important thing is to be able to bring one's attention as soon as one realizes, one to realize as soon as possible, oh, I'm thinking about my supper, return to the present moment. And so in the present moment, I'm always there and ready for any eventuality and I can feel the touch of the wire beneath my feet and I can feel the breath coming into my body and leaving my body and I can feel the weight of the balance pole and the connection of the balance pole to my hands. I can feel my muscles, you know, correcting, straining under the, um, the effort uh, and being present with those sensations, those, that real stuff really helps me stay focused for more time. So with the mind wandering um, and, and that thing of staying focused 100% of the time, if the mind does wander um, and, um, and, I, and I slip or I trip, um, then it's having trained in the muscle memory that I can physically get myself out of situations that may be you know, may seem challenging in the beginning. Afterwards, the mental and physical exertion, you must be kind of a mixture of exhausted from performing, but also on a high from having having done it. Yeah, it's an incredible thing. It's a really incredible thing. I mean, it really, it's like you hit the nail on the head because it, like it's, it's exhausting what I do, not just walking across the wire and holding the pole, although that takes a lot of physical and of course mental effort um, but also it's the preparation, so the mental and physical preparation and, and the preparation of the wire, like just to rig the wire is like a feat of engineering and requires a lot of hard work and effort. Um, so yeah, all of that stuff builds up over possibly even years, certainly months, weeks, you know, days and hours before and then the time during the walk. And so that, that moment of arriving at the end, yeah, there is this real euphoria of achievement you know I guess it's a huge dopamine release in the um in the body you know chemically um and um and and that's really lovely because you know it's the reward for all that effort and then it's also tinged with um in a way there's sometimes a bit of disappointment you know it's like lots of effort to be walking that wire and it's you know it's really hard work but as I'm getting closer to the end sometimes I'm like I don't want it to end like it's such a magical space to occupy, you know, you're in this place where only the birds go, you know, people don't walk through the sky, but we get to do it, we get to be there, and it's magic, it's like incredible to see the world from that perspective, so sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't want it to end, and I, you know, I get off and I'm like, oh, you know, can I do it, I do it again? <laughs> you mentioned earlier the, the sort of historical side of it and, and some of your predecessors, you've had the privilege of kind of recreating a few of those historic yeah. walks as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, main. I suppose there's two. There's two big ones. There's, there's a few we've done, but 
I'm fascinated by the the career of a guy who was known as the African Blondin. Uh, Carlos Troa was his name. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating for me. I think it's really, really cool that a black guy was super famous and lots of thousands of people came to watch him perform. This was when? Uh, in the same era as Charles Blondin. Uh, so probably more, a little bit later. So like 18, uh, he would have been performing in the 1860s as well, I guess, but certainly 1870s um, towards the 1880s. Like he, he had a rich career over about 20 years, I suppose, maybe more. Um, yeah, I, I love his work. I love the fact that his grandson, um, who's now fairly elderly himself, he's probably um, over 70, and he has done about 40 years of um, research on his grandfather's work, uh, or great-grandfather it might even be. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, there's quite a lot of evidence of, you know, where he walked and the tricks he did and, um, you know, stuff about his life and the people he married and, and, and all his um, sort of adventures as a human being. Um, and, yeah, I was lucky enough to do a reenactment of um, his walk, a recreation um, of his walk at Rudyard Lake, um, which was a, a, a very successful walk in its day. Um, and there's, there's sort of references to audience numbers and the trains carrying the people into the place. And yeah, we, we created this, recreated this wire walk over Rudyard Lake. Um, and, and it was fantastic because it's quite, it's quite a humble little town. It's a beautiful touristic town, um, village even. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a small place. Um, but the people who came, I think it was just really special to bring the magic. You know, you do something in London or Norwich or Cardiff and people love it. You know, they come along, they watch it, they engage with it, it's great. But when it's a smaller pace, the locals come and they might just be walking their dog and they're like, what are you doing? And you explain and it's like, oh, you know, they, they, they didn't realise that that had happened there. And by redoing it, you are not only transforming the place that they go to every day and walk their dog and they're like, we saw a bloke walk a tightrope here. And, you know, helping them to see that through through different eyes, but you're also helping to get Carlos's memory, you know, his work to be remembered by this generation. And, and I, I truly believe that those 19th century phenambulists, the things they did and the conditions they did it under, like they should not be forgotten. They're heroes, they're our, they're our history, they're part of our heritage. And, and like I say, you know, especially, um, in, in Carlos's case, it's super cool that there was a black dude that was being paid. You know, I, I don't know what conditions he worked under or what his manager was like, um, but I can only hope that he lived a rich and full life because he definitely worked very hard to learn to do all the tricks he did and then, and then do them. Living in Somerset, it must be really rewarding to perform at some of the iconic local events. You've taken your act to Glastonbury previously. Um, I know you've done some performances down at Burrow Farm as well. Uh, yeah. What does sort of engaging with more of a local community mean to you? It's really cool. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm a traveller and I have travelled uh, most of my adult life further or nearer. But I've always been bouncing around and moving around and, and, and I see familiar faces even when I go back to Greece or back to Brazil or, you know, whatever. Um, but now I, I own some land and I 
and I have a home. I guess that's something that I haven't really thought of or had for a really long time in my life. And so to feel like, yeah, I can still, you know, hopefully, <laughs> lockdown's dependent, hopefully I can still move around the country and around the world performing, and I love to do that. But having a place to return to and a local community that I feel like they really support my work. So like the Templeys, um in the cider farm in, at Borough Hill, you know, when the lockdown happened, they invited me there to, to do street shows and, um, you know, I didn't make any other money. I didn't have any other way of making money. So it's just, it's really amazing to feel people's generosity. And then, yeah, Glastonbury Festival. I mean, I've been performing at Glastonbury long before I bought this land. Uh, in fact, it's part of the reason why I was so happy to get land here, because, you know, obviously Glastonbury is one of the great things about Somerset, one of the many great things. I love it here. Um, and yeah, Michael as well. Michael Evis has been really supportive. Um, he's come along to a couple of my shows. It's, it's always an honour to see, you know, anybody, him, uh, Jerry Cottle, um, you know, lots of the, the local people, the High Sheriff of Somerset has been supporting my work. I feel really flattered. I feel really grateful to have that, that welcome to a county. I think, you know, I think a lot of the time when I was travelling and then I'd come back to England rarely but occasionally, I remember coming back and telling people I was a juggler or a rope walker, a clown or whatever. And they'd say, uh, oh yeah, you'll grow out of it. And I remember being really fed up with England. Oh, I'm going to live in Italy where they respect artists. Or I'm going to, you know, go and live in France. And, you know, they have proper circus there. Or, and, and actually, no, it's like very, very cool here. And people really do see, like they, they, it seems like they love what I do almost as much as I do. So yeah, I, I feel really, really at home. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> you also have um, quite a unique Somerset wedding story as well. That's right, yeah. I married my, I'm sad to say, now ex-wife, I'm sorry to say. Um, yeah, I married Phoebe, um, Phoebe Baker, and then Bolzini, now Baker again. Uh, yep, yeah, we got married at, over Wookiee Hole. Um, so yeah, it was, um, I think it was about 25 meters high, um, over the caves there. And, um, yeah, it was cool. I mean, it was like, gosh, yeah, who gets an experience like that? I remember watching her is, I'm a bit sad about it now because obviously, you know, our, our marriage didn't work out so well, but the wedding was bloody great. <laughs> and I remember sitting on the wire, I walked out first and waited um, for her to, to join me on the wire. And I remember as she stepped onto the wire in her wedding dress and then uh, slided and glided across the wire towards me. And I remember it being such a blissfully happy moment. She always had really graceful, beautiful steps as she walked across the wire. Yeah, she was a natural. And, um, and to do that in front of our our dear friends and circus family and real family. It was, uh, it was really, really beautiful to share that moment with everybody. And of course, you know, an extended audience. I mean, crikey, it went <laughs> a bit viral, I think. It was like on, on the news in as far away as India and yeah, local and national news. And yeah, it was, it was a very, very exciting experience. Yeah. Uh, and you now have a daughter. Yes, well. that's right. So Phoebe and I made a baby and um, she's now three years old. Has she, has she picked up any of the 
family talents? Oh yeah, absolutely, goodness. Yeah, well Nefeli does um, hula hoop neck, is her, is her favourite trick. She likes to spin a hula hoop around her neck. She's only three years old, so uh, <laughs> it's not a very long act. But she, she's very expressive and she, she naturally uses her body to express herself, um, which I think is beautiful and I really encourage it. Uh, I love to see her. It's, it's almost like she's got her own contemporary dance, kind of expressive dance vibes. Um, and yeah, um, I don't, you know, obviously I have sort of secret parental hopes that she will be a performer because it would be very flattering for me and I'd love to watch her and to support her in that career. I'd also like her to be able to choose something that maybe makes her money. And I don't know if, you know, performance is going to be the best for that or not. Um, and then in terms of her wire walking, I, I do try and encourage her to walk the wire. And um, I have to stop myself from really trying to push her because it has to be something that she comes to because she loves. I don't want it to be something forced on her. Um, and then if she were to get good at it and she were to do it, I'm also really scared because I don't, I don't want her to like face all the risks that I've had to face because it's really stressful. <laughs> but at the same time, like, you know, if anyone really wants to do it. And the, and the thing is, like my teacher told me this, like, it's not like you choose to become a high wire walker. It's something that you realize that you are. And if that's what she is, then yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> Has becoming a parent affected how you view the risks that you take when you're rope walking as well? Um, <laughs> I wish I could say yes. It's so weird. Um, I have heard from lots of other people, um, my ex-wife included, and uh, lots of other, well, a few other circus performers and high wire walkers, that, you know, that that caring for... Um, your own safety and well-being so that you can be there to protect your child is like a really strong instinct and I don't really have that <laughs> I don't know why I feel sort of bad to say it I mean I do there's a there's an Indian guru that I'm really interested in a guy called um, Neem Karoli Baba who was known as Neem Karoli and he said I was talking about this last night he said nobody no no soul no being no no human is born or dies at the wrong time. And I don't know if that's true, and I don't think it's like an excuse to just live recklessly and not wear a seatbelt and you know all that crazy stuff. Um, but it is really interesting if, if one is able to give faith, to generate faith enough to believe that there is some grand plan and whether it's God or uh, karma or the unfolding of the universe as it you know, naturally is, then to believe that there are no accidents and, and everything that is supposed to happen happens, then somehow it releases the pressure from having to try really, really hard to be a certain thing or do a certain thing so that there'll be a certain outcome and more we can kind of let go. I mean, an another Indian saint, a lady called Ananda Mayama, she, um, she said, Give your problems to God. And in some ways, like, I, I think that's the thing. Like, rather than worrying that I might fall to my death and not be there for my daughter, maybe just like, trusting that there are greater, greater forces in the universe beyond our control. 
I don't know, <laughs> I don't know where, to, where to go from. <laughs> yeah, I got a bit deep. Sorry, man. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. I'm just looking at my last question, being like, yeah, that doesn't. That's not a good follow up. Okay. Um, but I can ask it anyway. Cool. Um, so, do you have a a bucket list? Are there any walks that you'd love to do that are kind of still still out there to be done for you? Yeah, I mean, I have like, gosh, I have loads of. I always have loads of thoughts and things I would like to do, and uh, part of it is like bigger, better, higher, longer, uh, you know, in London and St. Paul's Cathedral and um, over the the Thames and uh, up to these mega high buildings. I don't know if the Shard is out of my reach, but, you know, the London Eye or, you know, something big and in the city. Yeah, Bristol, because I've lived there a lot. There's always, I always look up at the Suspension Bridge and Avon Gorge. I think it'd be amazing to do a walk there. Bristol's so iconic. Anyway, that, that image of the bridge is so iconic for Bristol. Uh, I walk up Glastonbury Tour quite regularly, and I really think that there should be a, a, a wire, a rope from a field up to the tour, maybe on one of the less windy days. <laughs> um, yeah, there's so there's so many. Cheddar Gorge, good, goodness, I'd love to walk Cheddar Gorge with my with my teacher and mentor, a guy called Jade Kinder Martin, um, and his teacher Rudy Rudy Elmankowski, a Czech guy. Um, he's, I think he's the best wire walker of this century. Um, and he's retired from the wire now. He's really quite old and vulnerable. But um, Rudy did it in uh, 59, 1959. And he, um, it kind of kick-started his career. He was a young man then. Um, so yeah, Cheddar Gorge would be amazing. Yeah, I mean, there's so many. And then sometimes, yeah, it's bigger, better, higher, longer, you know, all of, all of that stuff. And there is all that temptation. And then sometimes it's also like, well, you know, those most exciting experiences. Like I performed for Cirque du Soleil. That was really amazing. They've recently gone bankrupt, sorry to say. Um, and yeah, some of those like smaller shows for a few kids, slum kids in a favela or a, or a, um, a slum in India, and um, and you just remember how, when you can bring a little bit of magic to people that weren't expecting it or didn't know that it could happen and didn't know that it could move them in that way, then you change people. Like maybe not drastically in every way, but yeah, you, you change a little part of them and forever. So the game we play yeah. is, so it's about names of places in Somerset. Okay. And also, because you're quite a sort of fan of the Victorian era, yeah. there are some names in Victorian novels that right. sound like they could be an address in Somerset. Okay. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, and there are some names of places in Somerset that sound like they could be a character in a, yeah. in a Victorian novel. Yeah. So I've got eight cards here. Uh -huh. with um, with names on, on them. Yeah. Um, and so for each of them, you're going to have to tell me where you, whether you think they're a place in Somerset or a character from a Victorian novel. Excellent. I love it. I'm in. Definitely. Brilliant. Fire away. Let's okay. go. <laughs> so we're, we're going to play. It doesn't have a name, the game, but right. we'll just we'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the first name out of the hat, uh -huh. it's not really a hat, is Belle Dale. Belle Dale. I would say I would say that's a name from a Victorian novel. You're correct. Yes, excellent. Belle Dale is a character from Anthony Trollope's 
uh, small house at Allington. Right. It's a, it's a <laughs> I don't little, know the novel, but uh, it, sounds, uh, it sounds like a good read, definitely. Brilliant. If only I had more time for it, <laughs> that would be the one I'd go for. Next name is Newman Noggs. Newman Noggs. Wow. Um, it, could, it could be either, couldn't it, really? My goodness. Um, I'm, I'm going to say... Uh, I'm going to say a character from a novel again. Yeah, you're correct. Yeah. Okay, cool. Newman Noggs is in Charles Dickens' Nicholas Nickleby. Wow. All, wow. all the ends in, in that book. So yeah. that's two out of two so far. Cannon Grange is in I think that's a place. You're right. Yeah, yeah. excellent. Cannon Grange is in Wells. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. you're three for three so far. All right. Bring it on. Piney Slight. Oh, Wow. That's the place too. Isn't yeah, correct. It? Yeah, lovely. It's uh, I think Piney Slight is near Pease Down St John. It's a okay, a little bit further north. I love it. It's great. Putnell Reen. Oh my goodness. Uh, is that a place? It is a place. It is a yeah. place. Cool. It'd be uh, a good name, wouldn't it? I'm gonna. It's I'm, a good name. Yeah. <laughs> I can leave with these with you. Yeah, please. Uh, yeah. So the yeah the reens are it's those sort of waterways. Um, ah, right. out, out towards the Bristol Channel. Ah, wow. Yeah. Right. So oh, they're called the reens. Wow. Yeah. There's a bunch of different reens. Yeah. But Putnell is the best named one, I think. Yeah. Putnell's brilliant. All right. Where next one from. is Letty Garth. That's a person. It is. You're yes. right. Yes. Letty Garth is a character from George Eliot's Middlemarch. Right, I think I've even read it, you see. That's I, I don't remember it Possibly a, well, a memory. But... Okay, you've got two, two left and you've got them all right so far. Okay, okay, let's see. Mercy Chant. That's a person. Right. Yes! Mercy Chant <laughs> is from Thomas Hardy's Test the Durbervilles. Oh, wow, I've also read that. Yeah, it's a, I, I love Tested Over. It's been bleak right. and depressing. My favourite kind of genre. I love a bit of melancholy. Right. <laughs> Always cheers me up. <laughs> last one. Okay. The last name is Langford Heathfield. Langford Heathfield. That's a place, is it? It is a place. Yes! All right! 100%. You smashed that. I think some yeah. of them were guesses, I have to admit. It's like, well, well most no, of them but it's, guesses, still, but... it's still 100%. Which brilliant, is, brilliant, which is brilliant. Excellent, excellently well done. Yes, I, I know, um, what is it that my friend said? Certainly with Evercreech, where I am, um, you're, not, you're not a real Evercreature until you've been here three generations or something. <laughs> so I, I know I'll never really be from Somerset, but I, I certainly feel like I'm, I'm getting closer to, uh, to, to this beautiful county yeah. that I call home. Well, that performance <laughs> has, uh, has certainly put you you know earned you some somerset points serves you well yeah i hope the the real the real somerset people will uh will will count that in my favor (laughs) chris you've been an absolutely fantastic guest where can people find out more about you uh, and your performances and all the, the great stuff that you're doing? Well, I'm all over social media, like everybody is these days. Uh, so yeah, on um, Instagram, I love people following me on Instagram and my um, handle is Bulzini. I have another one that's Chris Ropewalker if you want to see more like backstage my life um, kind of stuff. Um, but Bulzini is all the show snaps. Um, I actually have a third one, which um, has a little bit of stuff about my spiritual work, uh, yoga and stuff that helps me prepare to get on the wire. Uh, that's all on Instagram. And then I'm on Facebook as Bolzini High Wire Walker as well. Um, but the best place I'd really like to send people more and more is to my website, um, especially um, 
uh, ropewalker.me.uk, www.ropewalker.me.uk to see more about my work and the things I've done. Um, and then uh, I have a second website which is about the, the shows that I do and the more collaborative projects that I do as the Bolzini family. Um, so it's the, the name that I created with my ex-wife and I continue that business. Um, I would say alone, but I have a lot of help from a lot of amazing creative people um, to do everything from circus workshops uh, through circus shows when we're allowed to um, and um, yeah, other other events. Uh, so so they can go to that website, which is um, bolzinifamily.com, www.bolzinifamily.com. Chris, has been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Loved it. Bless you, Lewis. Thank you. Thank Great you questions. Time. Like, super. Best interview I've ever done. 100%. Brilliant. Yay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Somerset Stories. You can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Instagram at Somerset Stories or email hello at somersetstories.com. See you next time.